Hey listeners, are you enjoying our podcasts and coaching advice? Do you feel like some guidance and accountability could help you stay motivated and focused during these uncertain pandemic times? We love connecting with our listeners and collaborating to make training work for your goals, your life, your personality. As a thank you for listening to our podcast, we want to offer any new clients $20 off the first month of coaching, which is normally $150. Email us at Julie and Lisa at runfartherandfaster.com to set up a time to connect over the phone to learn more. And be sure to mention this special offer as one of our loyal listeners. Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How are you? I'm okay. I've got a little bit of craziness in the house right now. So if there is barking on this in the background of our podcast today, uh, we are we are we have a, a doggy guest over for a friend who's having their house. Uh, there's some construction in their house, and the dog, which is a friend of our dog, we we have a dog, and this is a friend of Buster's, and they get along beautifully. Except that now that Shana is here in the house, Buster seems to be a little territorial. So hopefully. Hear any barking? It's just Buster protecting his territory from his playdate that's over. I feel like um, we should do like an off-topic episode on dogs. We both are dog owners, and I feel like we both are, are winging it so much. I mean, like, <laughs> I love. <laughs> anyway, to come over and see me. So, and we have a cat too. So the cat is <laughs> hiding somewhere, going, "Oh my gosh, this is insanity." So, and of course, it has Can to I happen just- when. We're going to record our podcast. Can I just say there was like a couple of episodes ago because, you know, we we've been recording all of our podcasts by Zoom. I haven't seen you in person in so long, Lisa. I totally miss you. And I was cracking up. We were interviewing someone. We were in a, a serious part of the conversation and your cat was like, literally like it looked like your cat was like making out with you like the cat was on the table like in your face and you're trying to talk and I'm and our guest is talking and I'm trying so hard not to laugh and I was like the cat is like like eating hang out over on on the table when I'm on like my desk when when I'm doing the podcast and he likes to like climb in front of the screen so yeah we've had a few times where like the cat I'm trying to push the cat tail down out of the screen as he I was crying at this point the cat was like literally like so close to your face and I was like this is hysterical so I forgot to mention that the work from home (laughs) with the cat kids and the pets it's just you know just part of the deal absolutely so anyway so tell me what's going on with you this week you know, not, not too much. We still have this uh, crazy heat wave that we've had. I don't even know how many, last I heard we were up to like 22 days of over 90 degrees. I, and we're clearly surpassed that now. Um, so, um, you know, global warming or what, whatever it might be, it's been, it's been hot. And, you know, we sound like broken records. It's been hot and talking about tips on running in the heat, but it, it's been, it's been warm out. So I've been trying to get out early. Um, still been doing a few rides. We hit, Alex hit his 500 miles on his, um, on his Strava cycling challenge. So I did a lot, lot, lot of cycling this month and scaled back some on the running. Um, I still have a couple rides to get in. So we actually rode this morning. Um, so I, I feel so like proud I'm- of Alex. I will tell you, I shared, um, your, you posted about it on your personal page your Facebook page. And I, I did share it on our Instagram because oh, I gosh. thought it was so amazing. And, um, again, just a way to challenge yourself outside of 
running and races, which is something we don't have, creating those challenges for you and setting an example. And in this case, your kids set the example and, and provided you with the challenge. So yeah, I never, you know, I love, I love writing, but I don't do a ton of it, especially by myself. Like, you know, it's, it's a lot to get out, to get out on the roads and, you know, it's a little nerve wracking to ride out on the roads, but he got me out there every day. So it was uh, definitely, definitely a good example of setting your own challenges, even without having races. So um, yeah, but for me, it was actually nice to have that as an option because when you're riding in this heat, um, it's still hot and you still have to be careful, but it feels less hot because you've got the breeze, you've got, you know, the, the air that's flowing. So um, so having that instead of having to get out and slog through a run in the heat was actually really nice. So I may, you know, on the hot days, I may keep that as part of my routine. I feel like it's been um, a good, good cross training. I don't know how it's playing into my preparation for virtual Boston. I'm trying to convince myself that combining a run and a ride are, uh, are you know, are equivalent of doing a long run, but we'll see how that, we'll see how that plays out when we get to the Boston virtual. I think it's going to be better. I mean, we've still got a few months left. And I very much believe that by the time we hit September for the virtual, even if it's hot, it's not going to be like this. It'll be better. Yeah, no, so, I feel like more, more it's, it is, am I getting in enough running to be prepared for virtual Boston since I've done so much cycling instead? So, I mean, I think I'm okay. I'm not, you know, at this point training for a particular time or a competitive time. So I'm not so concerned with incorporating cycling as part of my endurance building. So we'll see how it goes. It's an experiment. I, I know you're going to be fine, Lisa. You are someone who has trained for um, marathons on an elliptical before and done fine. I'm, I'm really not concerned. I'm really not concerned. I feel like you're going to be great. And, um, you know, we always talk about this. So this goes for you too, there's there's more than one way to train for a race, and none of us have ever trained for a virtual marathon. And so, for you to implement more cross training in one of the hottest summers on record is actually really intelligent and works for you. And you're just trying to complete it. You're trying to get to the virtual start line healthy. And that is what you will achieve by doing it this way. While not intentional that you decided to uh, train for a virtual race with more uh, cycling mileage than running mileage during the month of July, I think it's a really smart thing you're doing. You still have plenty of weeks left and I know you'll be just fine. And to that end, we on two weeks have decided we're going to do a special, a very special episode where we're going to talk about our tips for training for your best virtual marathon. So because this is a Boston marathon podcast, sure, we'll call it training tips to train for your best virtual Boston, but it doesn't matter because no one is running the Boston course. It's, it's tips for anyone who's wanting to execute a solid virtual marathon. So that is what our episode is going to be in two weeks. Next week, we have a really exciting guest um, who will reveal next week. And this week, um, coming up, we have a guest who we, we just, he's an amazing guy. So Lisa, why don't you talk a little bit about who, um, who's up next yeah, on the podcast? Well, so this, uh, this guest actually has shaped so much of 
how we, how we coach and our coaching philosophy about eight years ago, you and I went to a run med conference, which is hosted at the university of Virginia. University of Virginia has a very big running biomechanics department and they host every year a, a running focused conference for mostly for medical professionals and physical therapists, but our wonderful friend, Rachel Miller, physical therapist, keyed us into it and they don't prohibit non-medical attendees. So you and I went as running coaches, you know, when we were first starting to coach first couple of years of coaching. And while we were there, we got, we had the, the privilege of attending a session by Dr. Mark Cucuzella. And he is a physician and really become a, a kind of an expert in the biomechanics of running. And I still remember us being outside and him going through drills with us that teach your body how to take advantage of the spring, the natural spring mechanisms that we have and how we learn from him that running, running depends, running well and healthy and, and, and fast even really depends on your efficiency. So just like swimming and swimmers do drills all the time. And I know as somebody who is not a great swimmer, I get in the water, I can work as hard as I possibly can, like almost like I'm running through the water and go nowhere because I don't have good efficient technique and you can save energy and go faster and farther by being more efficient and avoid injury. So a lot of the injuries that we see as running coaches are because of somebody's running biomechanics and maybe a weakness or an imbalance or a low cadence or, or not being able to take full advantage of that spring mechanism. And we learned so much from him, not just the drills, which to this day, we still send to our runners and give our runners this, the same handout he gave us, the same videos, because they're really timeless and they're really fundamental. And so we and have- incidentally to all of our virtual coaching clients who are listening saying, wait, I don't remember getting those. You did. They're in the resources tab. Um, in and we put search. them in your schedule as drills. And most people are just kind of like overlook that, but we, we do. I feel like we've, we've really, you know, been good at drilling, drilling that into our runners of like, do those drills as the warm up, And, um, and, and really it's, uh, you know, he himself is also a very, very accomplished runner. He's been running for four decades now uh, and, and hit sub three marathons in every decade that he's run. And he's 50, in his 50s now and still running really well and, and really healthy. So it was really neat to kind of go back to where we started and talk to the expert who really shaped a lot of how we look at training and biomechanics. Well said. I also love how he sets goals for himself. He has, I believe, has the record for the most, or his own record is he has run 30 um, consecutive sub three marathons. Yeah, I think it's until he, this, until this year. Until he, this year. No, until the boss, the bad Boston. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and then he was supposed to do it at Marine Corps and he, um, that weather was not he just right. couldn't get it. He had like a 302. So now he's also running, I believe, a virtual marathon in the fall and we'll try to do it then. But he set a new goal because he couldn't get the consecutive. And now he wants to tie with Joan Samuelson as being a sub three marathoner for five decades. So this would be his fifth decade. So he's, he's an incredible runner. But what's also I, I really like about him is he's a physician and he's a physician in West Virginia and he chose to go back to his home state of West Virginia because 
as many know, that state has, uh, is one of the most unhealthy states in America. And he has set up a practice there where he helps people with metabolic disorders and has become, um, while he's a general practitioner, he's uh, very much into holistic medicine and um, really looks at the whole patient. And as a result, when he meets with his patient, he, patients, he looks at each one individually to try and help them determine what it is that's causing them to develop diabetes or develop that visceral fat that can be so unhealthy that can lead to cardiovascular disease and all of the things that we as Americans try to troubleshoot and often are comorbidities that are overlooked. So one of the things we do talk about in this episode is that um, with coronavirus, there are so many comorbidities that can cause someone who gets coronavirus to have uh, obviously a more severe uh, reaction to the virus. While certainly there are many healthy people like our friend Roman who we interviewed, there are also people with comorbidities that end up hospitalized. And, you know, are we doing enough as is, are we doing enough as a country and, and are our medical professionals doing enough to sort of look into those comorbidities to see what we can control and what we can do can do while this virus is still among us. So that's something else we talked about. And then we also talked about, um, interestingly, just like Dave McGilvery, uh, Dr. Mark, as we call him, presents as like one of the healthiest people. He, like we just said, he's run all these marathons, he's sub three, yet he, like so many other people, went to the doctor and realized, surprisingly, that he was vulnerable to type to diabetes. So Lisa, why don't you talk a little bit more about um, how that came up? Yeah, well, it was actually interesting. We were just kind of started talking about, I think, about nutrition and about, I, I mean, what really I think came out to me is that we were talking about how he treats patients and you really have to look at everybody as an individual and really look at how their body responds to different, we were speaking specifically about different um, you know, nutrients and different foods. And he told us about this proclivity towards diabetes and showed us, and you can't see it because we're, it's an audio podcast, but he actually showed us on our Zoom call that he has a really neat contraption that's a, a glucose or a blood sugar monitor that's, that's on his arm. And he can actually scan it with his phone and see at any moment what his blood sugars are. So he can actually see his reaction to different foods, how that spikes his blood sugar or if his blood sugar is low. And he can really manage that. So we get into a pretty um, good, really interesting uh, discussion about how he personally has adapted his nutrition um, to become a more, uh, a, a, to become a better runner. Um, and, you know, how he actually has had to cut out carbs that will spike his blood sugar. Um, and, and what's interesting to me is that, you know, it goes against kind of our conventional wisdom and what we have, you know, what we advise our runners, and that is that carbs are necessary for, for your fuel. But um, for particular individuals with particular conditions, that may not be the case. And that was, that was him. And he figured out how to get his body to adapt to produce its own glucose, basically. So he's somebody who can actually go out and do a long run, and his body's actually producing glucose, and he doesn't really need those gels and goos that, that a lot of runners do need. But what, you know, what I came away with is, is and, and this is, again, how he treats his patients, is how important it is for each individual to figure out, how does my body respond? What do I need to do to, um, to optimize my energy production? And you know, we get a lot of runners who come to us and say, like, I'm just feeling 
dragging. Like I just feel like I can't get my energy up or, you know, on that run I did my, my energy crashed or, um, you know, I've just had a several months of feeling really blah and my muscles ache. And again, I think that really points to finding a professional, whether it's a physician like Dr. Mark or a registered dietitian who has education and background in, in nutrition and understands different conditions and how they can affect your, your body's reaction. And really then figuring out what works for you. Are you somebody who needs to then rejigger your, 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 you know, your macronutrients? Are you somebody who has to figure out maybe a little bit alternative way of approaching your, your nutrition for, for running? But um, that's, you know, that's what I came away with is that we are all an experiment of one and you really have to understand your body and then understand the science and find physicians and, and professionals like registered dietitians who can help guide you. And you can't really, you know, we can't look at him and say like, oh, wow, he doesn't use gel on his run and he doesn't, you know, have to fuel on a long run. Maybe I can do that. Or, you know, this friend's doing XYZ diet and it's working for them and they're, you know, running strong. Doesn't mean I can just copy that myself and, and, and imitate it and get the same results because my body is different. Well said. Yeah. So without further ado, we are very excited to welcome Dr. Mark Kukasella to the podcast. Lisa, I hope you have a great week. You too. Stay cool. You too. Bye. Bye. We are really excited to announce that we have our first sponsor. R&J Sports, which is located in Maryland, is the first sponsor of the Run Farther and Faster podcast. Even though R&J Sports is a locally owned running store, they do ship nationwide and have a website from which you can order, rnjsports.com. If you go onto the website and purchase something over $100, just put in the code RFFFEATURES, F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S, and they'll throw in a free pair of feature socks with your purchase. You can also call the store at 301-881-0021 and over the phone, they'll provide some terrific guidance on which shoes are right for your foot. While it's not the same as a in-person fitting, for many of us, we can't do that yet. So this is a great option. In fact, one of our runners in China recently contacted the store and they provided her with some great advice and she was able to get a replacement pair of shoes that's working for her very well. So again, call RNJ Sports at 301-881-0021. Let them know that you're with the Run Farther and Faster podcast. And if you make a purchase of over $100, they'll throw in a free pair of socks or you can go on their website. Thanks so much, RNJ, for sponsoring our podcast. Dr. Mark Kukasella, thank you so much for joining us on the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We are so honored to have you come on today. We've learned about your work, um, about... Eight years ago, we attended the Running and Medicine Conference at University of Virginia, and you gave a terrific presentation um, from the perspective of a physician and a distance runner, and most of your presentation at that point was de dedicated to the things we need to do as runners to prevent injury. But since then, we've read so much of your work, and there are so many facets to you that we could talk about. We could talk to you for five hours. So because of our running podcast. We're going to focus our conversation a little bit more on running today, but um, as we talked about before, we might get on some tangents, so we apologize in advance that happens. You just are a wealth of information. So welcome, Dr. Mark. Well, thank you, Julie and Lisa. Uh, privileged to be on your show. So why don't you start kind of, since we, we know your background and we've had a, the opportunity to work with you in the past and we've kept up with all of what you've been up to, but why don't you kind of 
give our listeners a little bit of background on your running and professionally what you do and what you're doing now. I'll give the short version of that. Yeah, it's know, a lot. You know, it's a lot. So I'm uh, almost 54, but I, I, I went to University of Virginia for college and uh, stayed on there for medical school. I was a runner there, ran cross country and track, and I got into medicine because I was always hurt. <laughs> and we had this really kind of eccentric team physician, Dr. Daniel Kuhland, um, who ended up going into the Air Force later in his career, but one of the real innovators in running medicine. He, he was the first uh, physician to build like a therapy pool in his office, not to like soak in, but to run in. So I'm in his office one day and if anyone's old school, they probably know the name Mary Decker. She's in the, she's in the pool, you know, running with like a tether. <laughs> and, was, and then he, yeah, he was, he'd take like an hour with you. And, you know, we were all broken then, you know, that's what we did in college. We just ran ourselves till we hurt. And, I, and then that like, I guess, a little too hard. We didn't know anything. We were just knuckleheads, but he would like, you know, put little uh, inserts in a toaster oven and shape them and he'd look at you. And I said, that'd be kind of cool to do that, uh, you know, to help people. This first person who had really kind of helped me figure things out. And that, that inspired me to go to med school because I didn't have any idea of what I wanted to do, you know, like most college kids. So that inspired me to take all those courses and the MCATs and and then I got into medical school and I really liked kind of more holistic health and wellness and I had a military scholarship. So I really liked kind of the operational side of medicine, air crew, keeping people well, you know, treating all the active duty folks, not just like, not the operative side, which was orthopedics. So I went into family med, sports med as my field and flight med, which is a kind of unique military field and stayed active duty for about 10 years and then um, went on reserve side to so just retired a couple years ago after 29 years of military service. But um, we, we lived in Colorado. My wife had a grant there. They were going to move me. So I, I went reserve and started working at University of Colorado and then ultimately ended up back here in West Virginia with young children and parents that needed some help. And it's been beautiful. You guys have probably both run in Harper's Ferry and Shepherdstown and, you know, it's uh, came back here just as a year experiment to just to see, you know, from moving from Colorado is difficult. You know, if you're an outdoors person, that would just cry. You're like, why would I ever leave here? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I got back here, you know, but kind of but before that time, I'd been having all these running injuries and my, my feet looked like a track spike. This is about year uh, 1999, 2000. I was making kind of a last attempt at qualifying for Olympic trials marathon, needed to run a 222, ended up running 224 a couple times, you know, well hurt all the time. But my, you know, if you can see this, my, my foot looked like a track spike, <laughs> you know, where my big toe is like, because that's kind of what we did. And I ended up at uh, year 2000 getting my feet operated on. They took out part of the bone in my big toe and tried to straighten it out a little bit. And no one was talking about shoes or minimal shoes or anything and or even aerobic based training. But I started to dig into a little bit of biomechanics and physiology. And it taught me a couple things because we didn't learn any of this in med school. You know, if you had a running injury, you know, take Motrin and ice it and stop running. You know, that's um, was kind of the, the mantra. But, you know, the body has this amazing capacity to heal itself. But I knew pretty early on in my career, most of what we learned in medical school was wrong. We just had to figure out what part was right. So everyone's opinion then from the orthopedic side was, you know, Mark, you shouldn't run anymore, you know, because your feet are all jacked up and, you know, you've got arthritis and it's bad for you, maybe take up something else. But have you guys both found that a lot of your clients and yourself that there's something just magical about going out and running easy around the park and in nature that you can't replicate from something else? Yeah, absolutely. 
And we see that with our injured runners who can't run that, that they miss that so much. And, and we often tell they them it's a drug. <laughs> yeah. And we, it's, it, it is. And we often tell them to go to a physician that is a runner or understands runners because so that they don't hear just stop running so that you're right. There is, you know, there really isn't a, a, an easy replacement for running. That's part of the reason we opened my store over 10 years ago is to people like yesterday, we did a little, uh, sports medicine afternoon, just walk-in running clinic at my store. You know, don't charge anything. People have injuries, come in and we'll take a look at you, look at your gait, do all this stuff. People really appreciate that, you know, that they can just be listened to. You don't need medical technology for most running injuries. Usually it's a training error, biomechanics error, strength, mobility. You know, they're in their, their feet, have something structural that we need to look at and correct. So you can't do that over internet um, and you can't do that in 10 minutes, I don't think. You know, so it's 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 difficult, but yeah. So that got me really learning about low heart rate running and uh, aerobic development, which you know, as coaches, I didn't learn any of that. So I'd come across some articles by Phil Maffetone, who's a good partner. We do courses together. You know, where he was talking about like 20 or 30 years ago with Mark Allen and these ultra runners. Now is you know valid, and it's the same thing Lydier did, a lot of easy base running, builds mitochondria and capillaries, builds that aerobic system, builds that fat adaptation system too. So started running like really slow and, and started cutting up. I was sponsored by Brooks Shoes at the time, and, and there was this kind of minimalist type of shoes, not barefoot or anything yet. And just by doing that, you guys are familiar with the Marine Corps Marathon being in DC. So this was, oh, the yeah. yeah, I'm sure many of your runners do the Marine Corps Marathon, and that was like my race as a military member. And uh, year 2000, Marine Corps Marathon, we have a military, I don't know if you've ever been there and you see the Marine team, Army team. Oh, yeah. Army team now is like a bunch of Kenyans, they just crush us, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, they're the, like the Olympians, and they're in the, they call it the WCAP, World Class Athlete Program. You know, these amazing runners. And yes, yeah, so they're like out in the front of the pack. But um, Not to mention that not only are they amazing, but many of them while running, so fast are carrying flags the whole yeah. time yeah yeah certainly so many military members that their racing team aren't carrying the flags they're going for the win and so we would have this kind of friendly you know but pretty competitive group and i kind of called it off for that year because i'd been hurt and um said you know probably i probably don't want to run this year maybe i'll just kind of come hang out or something but then a couple of weeks before the race they said someone was hurt. Do you want to, you know, become official on the team? And I said, well, I hadn't done any workouts yet or anything, but sure, I'll, you know, I'll come to town. And I was still in Denver at the time, run the race. But all I'd been doing was like jogging at a heart rate of 150, 140-ish around this park in Denver, you know, since coming back from my surgery, which was about four to five months before that, took a couple months off. So maybe had like four months of just easy jogging. But at, during that time, what had happened, because I read this Maffetone method, which is kind of 180 minus your age, you know, if it goes above that, you know, back then they had these, I had this uh, cheap heart rate monitor that it beeped. <laughs> so it would go to 150 and it would beep and I would slow down. But when I first started doing that, I'd, it'd be like a 12 minute mile, right? And it would go beep. But a month later, it's like a 10 minute mile and it would go beep, you know, same heart rate, same effort. Then it was like an eight minute mile, a month later it would go beep. But right before the Marine Corps Marathon, and I'm, I'm running like six minute miles around this park in Denver at heart rate of 150, which was like, felt good, right? Like that's not hard, you can do that all day. And then showed up for that race that year and went through halfway in about 115 and then turned around, but felt like never, have you both run full marathons? Yep. 
Yeah, so usually about halfway you're working a little bit and you're saying doing the math to, you know, you got to hang on. But like I hit halfway and, I, and you, I felt like I hadn't even begun to run yet. And I just like picked it up and came back in like 113 and finished 228, finished in third place. But what was wild about that experience, usually you finish a marathon and maybe some of your runners, you know, you're done, right? I cannot do that again. And you're sworn it off. But I felt like literally I could turn around and do the damn thing again which was a message, right? Because that's like training, right? Like if we feel like we could go and do it again, we've added the right. So it's a completely different experience. And, I, you know, I think I passed, I don't know how many people on the, on the way home, right? Because everyone's slowing down. And then that kind of changed. That was knock on wood. My last running injury was that surgery 20 years ago because I've just forced myself to run slower, run with good mechanics, um, pay attention to maintenance and injuries but that's it i wrote it all in my book it's called run for your life but that's kind of the short story of how i got started into slower running biomechanics footwear you know kind of a you know combination of meeting some really smart people that taught me things that i was willing to try you know that were against conventional wisdom right slow down to run faster that's no in college they tell us just to run until you break but yeah, go ahead. So, a couple of things from your story with respect to you said that you ran around the park and you were running, you were using heart rate initially to kind of assess how slow you needed to go. Um, but you also were very focused, it sounds like, on your biomechanics. So, you weren't necessarily shuffling while no. running, you were running with good form while running. Um, what you what you felt was very slow, but eventually it sounds like you um, cut your speed in half when you went from a 12 minute mile in the same training cycle. Uh, much, six minute you, mile with the same effort. Right. So, do you think that was attributable to just gaining more fitness after your surgery, or do you think it was more attributable to biomechanics? Um, because that is a little bit different than what the general advice is, which is, of course, the talk test and um, making sure that you can have an easy conversation while running for most of your runs. You used heart rate, but you also focused a lot on your biomechanics. So can you talk a yeah, little I think bit? It's a combination. Running economy is how fast do you go at the same effort. So it's a factor of your aerobic development, but it's also a factor of your biomechanics. Just like if you had a bicycle that was a highly efficient bike or you had a beach cruiser, you know, you're gonna put the same effort in and go much faster on that sleek road bike, you know, than something that's uh, you know got bigger tires. So just by running slow, it it teaches you to run and I was running in like, you know, very flat, minimally shoes. You know, it just teaches you to kind of run with your spring. So running is a spring mechanism. And if you've been kind of just ground pounding and, you know, your feet are, are jacked up, your foot doesn't work. My foot wasn't working like a spring anymore because the big toe is basically gone. And if the big toe's not there, you know, if anyone there listening, you know, just take your big toe and bend it in and try to just jump rope. You know, it, it, you'll just go thud. And that doesn't work. But once you get that springiness back in your body, right, that your Achilles tendon is you run with your springs, not your muscles. And so just by that easy, soft, you see people just kind of jogging slowly, but they're nice and light and springy. It's like the Kenyan warm up or even on easy days, they're running ridiculously slow, but they're running with this beautiful and you see them running a pack. It's like a pack of you know, deer or gazelle. They're so relaxed. They're so nice and springy. So 
training the springs, but also building all of that aerobic system, which is capillaries, mitochondria, the capacity to use fat as fuel, you know, that comes from slowing down, you know, whether you're a high carb or, or low carb athlete, the slow running helps you, helps you develop that because you're, you're tapping into that fat burning when you're going at a conversational pace. But that's a marathon, you need that, right? Because you want to conserve glycogen, right? That's kind of what we, not eat more gels, you want to conserve what you got. So the more your body in the beginning of a race is using fat as fuel, then, you know, your heart rate, you know, worn heart rate monitors during races. So racing is a little bit different. But so if I, this is a heart rate monitor, I've worn it during Boston, and it's usually like 130, 140, you know, and this is like if you're running exact same pace, you know, it drifts, you know, it's you've coached people from Boston, right? You're kind of cruising down these hills and you're totally chilling. Heart rate's like 130, 125. But then no kidding, running the same pace, you know, coming up heartbreak hill and then just trying to hang on through town. You're like 180 the yes. whole freaking time at the same speed you were at like 125 or 130 going through Ashland at like mile four, you know, just trying to like just chill out. But yeah, so it's it's all like that's the running body, right? It's biomechanics, strength. You know, are you strong in the right place, and do you have a good engine? You know, do you have that's that aerobic capacity? So if you're missing one, like you could line up three people at the same VO2 max, and one's going to run much faster than another. They've got better biomechanic. You know, they've got better efficiency and movement. So I kind of like retaught myself that. Like it's basically like be, being a kid again, right? And just getting bouncy again and that's so, what we did I think with the drill session at UVA like eight years ago you know all yes. these little spring it's like all these spring track drills teaching your body to and I do that stuff every day right every day non-negotiable after my runs are all these springy drills to keep that spring so what do you do what drills do you do if you were going to recommend a couple of drills to runners because you know we give our runners drills and we we drill home the fact to how important they are and you know i think the first thing to go for a lot of people is the warm-up and the drills or the the stretching or strength after because they just want to get in their run but what how much mm -hmm. time do you spend on those drills and what what do you do what do you think are the most important drills to do incidentally the drills that we give our runners are, are your drills <laughs> and i have a if you go to the run for your life book website i have videos of, yep. of drills but if i gave you 10 drills you'd do none because there's too many so each person should look kind of look at a menu um, and there's some static drills and dynamics, you know, that you would do to open your hips up. So I think anything that gets your hips open, you know, mountain climbers, lunges, world's greatest stretch. These are kind of your dynamics just to get that. We all sit all day. You notice something right now. I'm at a stand up desk. So I try not to sit because that shortens everything. So there's drills for your mobility and your strength. You know, so even right now I could be standing on one foot, you know, I'm standing on one foot now. This is a strength drill, working on my foot strength, hip strength. But the things I think we taught mostly at UVA were kind of those spring drills. So you have to make sure people do the drills right. If you do a drill wrong, activate the wrong things, you're just, it's neurologic, you're reinforcing wrong. So, you know, I go through the basic ABCD skips, which what we did in track, which are kind of different varieties of skips, you know, but activating the glutes, activating hip extension, you know, getting your foot to, to feel like a spring on the ground, you know, so going through that sequence of, of skips, you know, kind of high knee skips, but the high knee skip, you actually apply the power to the ground, not try to lift your body up. You know, it's kind of like a sprinter skip where you go boom to the ground. You know, B skip is where you're bringing your foot back down under you, but quickly, you know, kind of snap, just try to coordinate, bring in that foot 
because what you're trying to do running is unconsciously get your foot back closer to center, not just let it lazily go out in front of you and smack hit the ground. This is where barefoot running on pavement is magical because you just can't do that. If you're running barefoot on pavement and you try to do that, you'll last about two steps. You're, you know, you'll rip the skin off your heel. So barefoot running isn't dangerous. You know, running wrong barefoot is probably not a smart thing to do, but it forces you to slow down. C-skips get a lot of hip extension. You can look at these, you know, on the site. Um, D-skips kind of help our quad mobility. But another really simple one that, um, and then I'll do strides, right? Because just doing, you know, once you get, so every day, like this morning I ran, I have a golf course and I don't wear shoes in the summer, so I'm barefoot anyway. So I'm just, after I'll do a series of A, B, C, D skips and then do like six to eight 40 meter strides. You know, first one feels a little bit uncoordinated. And these are later called these alactic sprints because you don't build up acidity. They're so short. You know, they're not a workout. They don't break you down. So they're like dynamic stretching in motion, but you do them warm. And by like that sixth one, you're like flying because really you're just training your body to keep that turnover, you know, mm -hmm. keep that coordination without, you know, tr you know, how do you, how do you get fast without running hard? It's kind of the goal. I mean, you run hard, you break. So you get fast without running hard by slowing down, developing the aerobic system, but becoming, you know, more efficient in movement. And another drill, but you got to be strong in your foot to do this one. But if you do this one, you'll, you'll like crush it. It's called the single leg run drill because running is a series of single leg hops, really. So, you know, you basically take your shoe off. You can leave your shoe on. If you're on grass, you take your shoe off. But just almost like you got hot feet, you know, can you run on one leg? Boom, 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 boom. One leg, one leg, switch to the other one. You know, and that teaches you. So if you have a really dysfunctional foot, your single leg run is going to be thud, thud. <laughs> good and then like kids playing hopscotch or something right that's like a single leg run right the kids are just like hop 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 um jumping rope is another really good one right because that teaches you not the jump the jump but bing 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 anything you know i have stairs you know you can kind of do little stair sequences you know up down up down up down you know you're trying to just minimize ground contact time but use your spring but pick a few that you do you know maybe three so if you give people more than that, but, you know, I, and I know like the type A, you know, Strava runners, you, you won't see me posting my runs on Garmin or Strava or any of this stuff. I don't even know how to use the damn apps. But, uh, you know, so this morning I had an hour and probably ran 50 minutes, you know, just jogged, listened to a podcast or something. And then the last 10 minutes were the sprinty stuff, even burpees and you know, things like that. But that 10 minutes is the most important 10 minutes of, you know, the, the 50 minute jog is for my brain, you know, for stress relief. And the other stuff is a little more taxing, but I know if I don't do that other stuff, you know, the first 50 minutes in 10 years might not be as easy. So I got to do the other stuff just to make that first 50 minutes work. Let's, re let's repeat that again. <laughs> Take the 10 minutes to do the drills and do the work that isn't as meaningful to you as the run because the run is certainly yeah. easier and more meditative because that way you'll still get to do that meaningful meditative run in 10, yeah. 20 years. Yes. That and then I have kettlebells in my basement. So I do tur Turkish get up, which is an amazing exercise, full body squats uh swings so but that's that's not fun <laughs> and no. i don't do it and then i have a chin-up bar between my garage so this is the stuff you just tax your body a little bit with this stuff every day and then you can go do the fun stuff so doing burpees is not fun I, i'm not like 
for maybe like a true crossfitter or a marine they just love doing burpees to failure to me that's like no <laughs> but i do them so i can do this they really and then you can if you have a high school camp you can show the high school kids how to do them but you right. only do it for 10 minutes too it's not like you're spending a half hour yeah, 45 minutes up, in so a gym right no no it's, it's all body weight outside you know a few days a week i'll do the burpees in the grass and mountain climbers you know but pick a little menu of things that work on your spring, your mobility, your strength, your coordination, neuromuscular, you know, which is kind of like how you move, right? You watch people, people who sprint well will become good distance runners. Yeah. And how do you see that change or how does the importance change as we get older? Because, you know, we're, we're all masters runners here. And one of our focuses yeah. and yours, you've done very well is staying healthy and running, you know, well into our later decades and not only you've not only continue to run healthy since your injury 20 years ago but um faster you you know you you still are hitting sub three marathons so how does that you know change and how does that how does the importance change as we get older yeah so there's a couple stages in life which are critically important to because uh, things do change so i'm 53 pretty close to 54 now so the biggest um kind of barrier, kind of challenge as we get older is this thing called frailty and sarcopenia. That's what we're fighting back now. I mean, maybe we're all training to be able to get off the ground at age 90 and carry our groceries up the stairs. So strength training, like when you're 30 or certainly an 18 year old boy, they have this thing called testosterone and growth hormone. I have a 17 year old now that they, they can just look at a weight and gain muscle <laughs> and they can eat carbs too, right? Mm -hmm. They're just growth hormone, testosterone. Do any of y'all have a teenage boy? Yes, we both do. <laughs> okay, so you know that. All right, and then you have your 50 year old male running client and they've been mm -hmm. through menopause, okay? So this is through menopause. Same thing, right? These hormones, that maintain muscle mass go down unless you become that dude because this is not real I'll say this right out so that open up that United Airlines magazine and there's the dude with the Chippendale body you know and the and the head that looks about 70 is like Dr. Life and he's selling you this supplement that's called testosterone <laughs> it's not real okay love it so how do we maintain that so there's two things you got to do to keep your muscle mass and if you do one of these two and not both of them you'll fail so guess what the two things are Maintain strength training <laughs> strength training strength training you got to lift some shit right yeah. lift some, i don't care if it's in the gym or water coolers or you're a farmer you know and you're just chopping stuff so you got to strength train and the other thing is what we do maybe three times a day twice a day what we put in our mouth so we need protein. We need adequate protein, adequate protein. So if you're active, you're doing any kind of training or hard physical work, you need about 1.5 grams of protein per kilo of body weight. You know, so say you're, you know, 90 kilo runner, you know, that's going to be, you know, 120-ish grams a day, you know, somewhere in that range. So that's real, right? You got to have two or three eggs in the morning. You got to have a protein at every meal. Right, certainly get your vegetables if you like your vegetables, but you need to get the eggs, you need to get the meats, you need to get the seafood, you need to get the full fat dairy cheeses, you know, nuts have a little bit of protein, but not the highest quality protein. So the animal products are the most bioavailable and the full spectrum of amino acids. So it's not just grams of protein, it's quality of protein. 
people based on their own philosophies can decide, you know, how much meat, fish, or vegetables or nuts. But when you're actually, it's called the DIAAS scale. So it's the quality of the protein. So it's an egg, for example, if you left it alone, would become a chicken. And most people would know that. So that's actually like the perfect food. You know, I eat like five of them a day. And if I like a travel. Including yeah, yolk, right? Oh, gosh, yeah. The yolk mm -hmm. is, is the gold. And the yolk, mm -hmm. actually, the substance in the yolk, everyone's buying cartilage product, right? Spending a lot of money. But what is in that yolk is like incredibly healing for fascia, cartilage. So I'm, everyone's like an N of one, right? So if I'm like traveling and, and like say you're just someone you can't, like I get farm fresh eggs and I'll go like two or three days and just maybe I'll have an egg at breakfast. But you know, it's like some little cruddy white egg from the supermarket. Like I just don't feel good. Then you come home and you eat just like five or six eggs or something. And then like the next day, you're like, your body like feels healed again. That's I wouldn't have known that when I was 30 and it probably didn't matter as much when I was 30. But now at 53... You know, so I always have like, because the egg is like the easiest thing. I'll, I have a little egg cooker, right? So I've always got hard-boiled eggs. Just, I don't have to prep them, right? Just got a couple here for lunch today. And you know, I'll either throw them on something or just eat them straight out. Keep your Lift strength. Things, keep your muscle. protein. Okay. Um, and that also goes for runners who aren't masters. Because lifting, strength training and protein also helps prevent injury. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, we have to recovery right so we get better by adding a stress breaking ourselves down and recover so we get we improve in recovery so nutrition and again it's going to be it varies you know each person has their own needs but really the, it's non-negotiable that these good quality proteins you know healthy fats are really the, the lifeblood and the fuel for the human body you know and add carbs if you're not i have a type of diabetes that doesn't make the insulin so i'm a low carber but that's by my own medical necessity you know, so everyone has to decide for themselves how they're going to fuel their body based on their metabolic needs. So since you brought it up and we, we want to talk about it a little bit, um, we appreciate that you just said that, that everybody needs to look at their own metabolic needs when determining the right um, food choices for them. So we have been inundated, particularly during pandemic with all kinds of, you know, now's the time to take care of you, now's the time to get healthy. And there's a lot of chatter always about trends and diets. Um, there's intermittent fasting, there's keto, there's um, uh, low, low fat, high carb for certain people. There's um, low carb, high fat, but at the end of the day, can you talk a little bit about um, diet trends, particularly, and and as a physician, what you recommend to athletes in particular to maintain health, aside from what you just mentioned, which is protein? Yeah, it's a great question, Joe. So the ultimate goal. So I'm standing here in a clinic where we try to reverse disease, not manage it, reverse it. So they actually allowed me to work to reduce carbohydrates in people and take them off of medicines. And we have a you know, large number of people that have come off of all these medications um, based, because type two diabetes is a dietary disease. Type one, you don't make the insulin. So they're both called the same thing, but type two is a dietary disease at its, at its heart. So people can be fit, but not healthy. That was Phil Maffetones. He wrote a book called, titled that like 1980. So that if we are healthy, we can go do our exercise. So there are a lot of people lining up for 5Ks, 10Ks, 
marathons who aren't even aware of it. They have prediabetes. They have what's called the metabolic syndrome, which puts them at risk for cardiac events, right? So we want to create a healthy body, right? They have sleep apnea, so they're not sleeping. You know, they're under a ton of stress, you know, so their, you know, yeah, their tissues aren't healthy. So if you have type 2 diabetes, hyperinsulinemia, insulin resistance, your tissues are inflamed, right? You just get all these little tweaks and things just don't heal. So we want to get everyone has, you know, when they come in, you know, we'll try to identify where they sit, you know, and even give people who have diabetes, you know, so I have on my arm right now, it's a continuous glucose thing that sticks in my arm. And if someone wants to know, okay, can I tolerate, I'll just show you how this works. I need to log in, you know, can I tolerate, you know, banana or something? So what you'll do is you'll just, yeah, so this is my sugar right now. It's 106. 106. Yeah, so that's actually pretty good. But what you notice is, so this is a, a healthy body that can go back again on that. So you just scan that to figure yeah, out what you're... It, but you see this morning, I ran from like 7 to 8.30, and my sugar goes up. Okay. So you're thinking so you have... your sugar will go down, because my body makes glucose. I didn't eat before that. Your body makes glucose. Then I had three eggs, and my sugar goes down. It's all paradoxic, so, but just like, how would someone know, like, how they can eat? So here's, um, what the, yeah, so here's this, this little spike up there, the 200, like a little piece of watermelon after a run. It's not a, one of those a day, it's not a bad thing, I'll dispose of it, but if I ate a lot of fruit, if someone said, well, fruit's good, and I believed that, I mean, so my sugars would be 250 to 300 all day which isn't good. So people can go buy a $9 glucometer and just check their fingers or they can get a monitor. But yeah, so people, you can't unsee what you, what you see, right? So that tells you a lot because people will go find some dietary advice, but they'll never check their sugar. So anyone who's developing a little belly is developing diabetes, right? It starts in the liver. So they could be running 40, 50 miles a week. But if they're developing that little bit of a belly, they're probably eating too many carbohydrates because their liver is becoming insulin resistant. And then when you're insulin resistant, you produce more insulin to dispose of the carbohydrate and that high insulin level stores it. So that, I mean, it's a whole kind of side written papers on this if people are interested. What I have a question with respect to that. What about um, women? There's a, a lot of women who are um, peri or post uh, menopausal who suddenly develop a little bit of a belly. And, and um, we often talk about that with um, many of our clients who are struggling with that shift in, in their body type where they suddenly find that they're going from maybe more of a pear shape, which is traditionally healthier for women, yeah. to, to a little bit of an apple shape. The apple's dangerous. What is what can what can a woman do who's going through that? Um, what do you tell otherwise yeah. healthy people who suddenly find that shift? But do they need to change their eating? It's a great question. Again, like with everything in medicine, it depends. So I, I would never answer that question over like email because mm -hmm. they could have, you know, maybe they're low in thyroid, maybe they're low in vitamin D. You know, mm -hmm. so it's kind of like look at the dashboard. If they came into clinic, I would check. You know, do they have prediabetes? Prediabetes is diabetes. So we would check what's called an A1C average blood sugar. I would look for markers of what's called the metabolic syndrome, which is insulin resistance. Okay, are they a little bit high blood pressure? Is their triglyceride high? Uh, insulin packages, carbohydrates as triglyceride. Is their HDL low? You know, so these are patterns that travel with glucose intolerance. 
And if they're matching up to that, you know, okay, you, you look like you fit in this spectrum, then we do a little mini experiment. Okay, well, how about for three weeks, we just, you know, eat plants and animals, right? <laughs> this is not like extreme, right? We're not telling them to diet or start. We're just saying, okay, get rid of all, like, I know you think that fruit is natural and healthy or agave or your smoothie at Jamba Juice, which is, has more sugar than the Coke. So let's just, but they don't get it until you point out where the sugar is because it's everywhere. So let's do like a three-week lockdown on sugar and see how you feel. Not three days, because they probably won't feel too good. <laughs> three yeah. weeks. Slow your training down. You know, big one, sleep apnea. So if they have sleep apnea, you know, so I, I would just check. None of it's really fancy, but just kind of look for the big rocks. You know, are they a night shift worker? A lot of this really just throws their body into this mismatch of, of food tolerance. But it takes, you know, it takes a, a little bit of a history. But, you know, there's certainly no downside, even if someone reads a blog, to getting rid of sugar for three weeks. You know, there's no essential sugar. So it's not like you're, yeah, just do it. But don't do, but do it right. You know, so if you're on any medications that lower glucose or lower blood pressure and you just decide to stop eating sugar, you know, then you, you could go low in blood because you, things improve pretty quick. So if you're on medications... Um, make sure and there's medications that contribute to weight gain right so there's you know different prednisone different types of uh, antidepressants um, mm -hmm. that can really be powerful some of the birth control methods can really drive weight gain I have a clinic up here if people want to are dealing with that and you know we try to educate them mm -hmm. so they figure themselves out I don't tell anyone what to do it's like let's try to sort it out get a good story from them I personally love that you do that because it, it really shows, I mean, you're also someone who went through this because you just mentioned that you um, yourself deal with blood sugar issues. And so you um, presented, I would imagine, as a very healthy person and you had to go through this. So can you explain a little bit about what happened to you personally? Yeah. So, I mean, I look like this. <laughs> so I'm in the military in 2012. And um, doc, uh, dudes don't go to doctors. Would, would you all both agree with that? If you coach men, they, they don't like going to doctors. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> femur is sticking out after a rock climbing accident. But in the service, you have to, right? You got, I was a flight doc. So you got to go in every year, get your eyes checked, make sure you don't have any cavities. And they draw your panels of blood work, right? And all that stuff. And my, this is 2012. My glucose was high. It was in the diabetic range. And it's like, well, you, you know, I just won the Air Force Marathon that year. You know, it's like, wait, this doesn't make sense, right? So then they drew an A1C, which is the average blood sugar. And I wasn't fully diabetic. I was like very close. I was in that pre-diabetic range. And in the Air Force, if you're diabetic or on diabetes medications, you're medically boarded. So as a flight doc, I knew that there's always a way to try to kind of hack something because you don't want to, you don't want to present with an illness. But I was at the, an Air Force base that had one of these continuous glucose monitors. They weren't as sleek and easy to use. There was no cell phones then that read them. But I wore one for three days. And I, I was a, a, on the runner's diet then, right? Um, you know, pretty much cereal and bread. But I was crashing all the time. I would go up and I didn't know I was doing this because I never checked my sugar. But I was like hungry like all the time, like like three hours after I ate because I, 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 I still had an intact second phase insulin. So the other test they did, you know, people that are in medicine understand this test is called a C-peptide. It's a measure of how much insulin your pancreas is producing. And my C-peptide was about was 0.3, which is very minimal insulin production. It's in the spectrum of type one, meaning you're not making enough insulin to manage your needs. 
So that was like, well, I mean, I'd never even ordered that test as a family doc. <laughs> so I had to kind of go back to school. But the, the glucose monitor, I think, really saved my life because I just wearing that a few days, I saw exactly what was happening and I knew the way out. And I left, you know, that assignment because I was a reservist. So that was my tour past the physical. And then I just started checking my sugar like four times a day, you know, for until I got one of these things about two years ago. And I knew that you know, the fruits. <laughs> so that was my last piece of bread or bowl of cereal because that just sent it through the roof. So I basically went from runner's diets to at that time, you know, non-runner's diet. So like I just, you know, as a doctor, I, I had learned from every esteemed professor that eggs cause heart attacks. You know, eggs clog your arteries. It was called the diet heart hypothesis. Now what we've learned since then was it was a hypothesis meaning a hypothesis is a hypothesis. We test the hypothesis, and if the results don't confirm the hypothesis, the hypothesis is wrong. So I, I can comfortably tell your audience now that the diet heart hypothesis has been debunked. Eating fat and cholesterol doesn't raise bad blood fat and cholesterol, and it doesn't clog your arteries. I've been through every cardiac test too. My dad had a heart attack at 35, so if eggs were going to clog my arteries, mine would look like, you know, a bunch of crusty pipes now, but I have a, what's called a calcium score of zero, meaning I have no plaque in my arteries. And that's, you know, knock on wood, that's a good test. So each person has to, you know, that's what we do with patients. It's like, let's sort out, let's try to look for objective data on what it is that, that you got or don't have. If they're completely healthy, I want to reassure them they're completely healthy so they're not paranoid. <laughs> then they become orthorexic, right? That's where you're just like hyper-focused on every morsel of food. Just go with joy, right? If you're healthy, you're well, run, don't eat junk food. Okay, you're pre-diabetic. We need to get rid of that, that whole wheat bread you're eating and the granola and the cereal, all this stuff, this pasta. For you at age 54, at 20, you're insulin sensitive, your body could deal with that, but now it's just not behaving the same way. So Dr. Mark, how do you feel your runs? Do you use, so I assume you don't use what most runners use and what we recommend to our runners, um, uh, traditional, generally traditional gels or um, quick carbs just during runs to fuel. Um, what do you use? I use what's on my body. <laughs> so if you're adapted to use, mm -hmm. you saw today, right? You saw on that little uh, uh, graph. So my mm -hmm. body's making glucose by running. That's a good thing. So I don't need to carry, I'm, my body's making sugar because it's trained itself to do that. So, but again, like if someone had, hadn't trained their body to do that and they went out on a two hour long run without carbohydrate, they haven't built that engine. So if they built that engine, you know, you don't need, I, I use a lot of electrolytes in mm -hmm. the summer, you know, because go through, so I have a, you can, it's called hydrate zero calories. Mm -hmm. So the salt and the potassium, so that stuff's magic. Because if you're just drinking the free water, you know, then you become a bit water intoxicated. So I'll load up before my run, you know, very electrolyte heavy drink, no calories, just electrolyte heavy. And that kind of is like, stores the water bottle in your tissues <laughs> so that's good then I don't have to carry and then I'll usually carry you know like one bottle on a run with me in the summer and just try to find a place that loops back that might have another fill 
you know, if it's a really long run, I had a three hour run Saturday. I had a little pack that had a, a leader in it. So yeah, electrolytes are good. But again, you know, electric battery is kind of a fat burning machine, really efficient, no exhaust, <laughs> you know, so it's it's great way to run. And then glucose is kind of the like the gas, a little more exhaust, a little more inflammation, a little more recovery. So you want to be adapted to be able to use both. You know, your easier runs tap like this is the foundation. And then if you gotta speed up the hill, you know, have this one ready to go. But like if you know, I used to coach a team in training out in Denver, you know, a lot of long runs, you know, we we would just keep their heart rate slow because if your heart rate is heart rate low, your body is using fat as fuel. Mm -hmm. So back to the how can you assess that without a heart rate monitor? I think Julie, mm -hmm. you mentioned the conversational pace, the talk test. That's what we recommend, especially in the heat and humidity, because sometimes the heart rate will not necessarily reflect exactly. um, how you're feeling on a run. Because there's the physiology to that is real. So we mm -hmm. breathe in oxygen and we breathe out carbon dioxide. So when we're using fat as fuel, we, it's called a respiratory exchange ratio. There's less carbon dioxide production. When we're using pure glucose, there's more carbon dioxide production that you must expel. So if you're carrying on a conversation, you're using fat, right? You're not producing a lot. You know, in a run where there's always a certain pace where like people stop talking, you know, someone tightens the screws. So that's when, or maybe one person's chatting away and then the other person's not, they're like their respiratory rate changes. They can't talk. They're burning sugar and the other one's burning fat. This, this one can run all day and this other one's gonna make it like another half hour and they're gonna fall off the back. So that talk test is, you don't need fancy stuff. So if, and, and you walk, run it in the summer, right? So we would just tell them, you know, if you're training people for a, a four and a half to five hour marathon, they're going to be better walk running, you know, this, every mile, like when I'm doing these ultras, I'm always walking, you know, but not waiting till I need to walk. It's like walk early and often, you know, if there's, whether you have it on your watch every mile, walk a minute, opens your hips up, gets your heart rate down, just works different tissue. But most people, unless you're running like a sub three, I think most people would benefit by doing walk running during the race itself. Yeah, that's in, in that, that brings up another question because you talked about, you know, once we get to that point where our respiratory rate changes, we start to burn that glucose and, and that for a lot of people is in a race. And so for you personally in a race, do you fuel in a race when you're running at a harder, at a harder effort or are you, are you not fueling? Not in much um, other than like you sense it, just top off a little bit of glucose. So, and again, this, the beauty of this fat adaptation is you can run at higher levels compared to your VO2 max. So your percent VO2 max. So how fast can you run while burning fat right. is a beautiful thing if you can upregulate that. So the reason like low carb performance has been debunked in the literature is the, the body of the literature before like Steve Finney and Jeff Volek started really publishing heavily in this was, well, you're limited by you can only burn about 0.8 grams per minute of body fat because you're limited. Like you can't burn that fast enough to create the ATP to run fast, but that's in people that pretty much eat a lot of carbs. So that's why you're going to shift over to glucose. But then there's this other whole group of people, which the study was called the faster study. So they took, you know, Mike Wardian was in there. He's another local yeah. guy friend. He yeah, was he's on our podcast. Group. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. I, I paced him for a bit of his uh, CNO canal couple mm -hmm. summers ago. Oh, nice. The of the night. Yeah, he's come out to my race, Freedom's Run, too. 
you know, maybe I can talk him into coming this year since everything's canceled. I bet he <laughs> so, will. All right, oh, yeah. still on, right, October 3rd. Yeah, we want to get to that in a second, but we want to hear your story. So you had two groups. Um, yeah, so there's the people that had not been for three weeks, but these are people that had been on low-carb diets, you know, not like, mm-hmm. like real low-carb diets, you know, 50-gram carb a day, you know, and then the people that ate traditional runner's diets, you know, they were both equal performance. But what they showed in this low-carb group was, on average, they're burning like 1.6, 1.7 grams per, per uh, minute of fat. And so they're running, they're able to run at like 80%, 85% of their VO2 max while- and still burn fat. fat, yeah. So I've been to the labs myself. I posted a blog on some of the results and little videos of it because you go in and you just test yourself. So um, my VO2 max, last time I tested, it was about two years ago, went down to NDU there in DC, Fort McNair. And my VO2 max was like 64, which was pretty good for 50 years old. But I'm running at like 90% of my VO2 max, still burning fat. Wow. So that's good. So I can run like marathon pace hard and not bonk because I can burn fat like at a seven minute a mile running a marathon. But you do need a little bit, you know, so in a race, I'll just like, I'll just take a little hit again. I don't carry anything with me, mm-hmm. you know, but if I feel like every couple aid stations, maybe every four miles, you know, just take a little hit of the Gatorade, maybe get a little electrolyte. I carry in my pouch a couple of those you can sodium things. So I'm willing to slow down at an aid station. Right? Mm-hmm. It's a marathon. So I'll slow down or, you know, sometimes at some of those races, someone will hand you a real bottle, like a little polar bottle, you know, like a little water bottle. And it's like, Oh, but yeah, you grab that that has a lid and you'll slow down, pour the electrolyte in there, shake it up. And then you'd be able to drink it like from a bottle. And that's worth the 15 seconds of slowdown to get like 16 ounces of electrolyte, depending on the heat of the day, there's been some hot years. Clearly worked for you because you, um, I believe you have at least 30 sub three marathons, um, maybe 31 at this point, is that correct? I had 30 straight years of sub three marathons. Um, 30 and, uh, straight I, years. Yeah, and then that year of that horrible weather in Boston, it was like the-, the 2018. <laughs> yeah, it was like everyone ran like 15. I yeah. ran a 304 yeah. that year, you know, and I think the the men's time was running one in 216. Yeah. <laughs> That's when Desi won it in like 240 yeah. and change. Yeah. Like, oh, but it was just a beast of, and then I, I can't, I started, so I, I was ready to, I mean, I was ready to run under three then, and then I followed up at Marine Corps Marathon and just had a really busy fall and I ran 302 at Marine Corps Marathon that fall. So but, you know, so my goal this year, you know, everything's been canceled. So it's, I was hoping to try to run under three at Marine Corps Marathon, but that's canceled. So I'll wait to, I'll give it a go. Um, so there's like a small group. I mean, you just try to make stupid goals for yourself. Yeah. So they run a sub three in five decades. You know, so my first decade was the 80s. So this is the 2020. So in Boston, if that's a good <laughs> 2021. I'll try to get myself ready to go into three at Boston this year. That sounds perfect. Uh, that brings us to a good, a good topic though. And a good question. Cause this is, you know, what we're facing ourselves and with all of our runners is how are you staying motivated? What are you doing for your training now? And, and you do have a race that is still on the yeah. calendar. So talk to us a little bit about kind of what you're doing and the plans for the race. Yeah. So we have a freedomsrun.org. So we have this beautiful kind of, 
backyard marathon half community event 5k 10k that goes through harpers ferry antietam national battlefield cno canal people come from you know all 50 states it's a beautiful little old school race and uh you know the it caught that uh, tops out at like 400 for the marathon so you can space that out pretty good we'll cap it at about 600 for the half um, all with small pod, almost like the same way Marine Corps was going to do it. You know, small waves, you know, you have a chip on, you know, just let people come out and run it. So we have approval through the town. We've got a couple more meetings with the national parks just to convince them that it is okay to run outside. You know, we'll have all the safety measures at the start and finish but, and just keep people, you know, I think people are respectful. They'll enjoy the privilege of being able to do an event. You know, it won't be like those pictures of the parties, <laughs> you know, and then we'll maybe we'll uh, have little spies out there with little wands or something. If people get too close, mm -hmm. you know, they'll wear masks at the start and, you know, they can take their mask off once they're out on the trail and separated. So I'm hoping, you know, that sound uh, judgment will prevail and we can do this race. And it's we did camps last week for high school and middle school kids. They were just so joyous to, you know, social distance is real physical distance is different so they were not socially distanced from these kids running on the trail but we kept them physically distant but they felt like you just heard them like gosh it's so nice to see other kids <laughs> so so that was cool so we'll um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's so important on. it's so important sports are a lifeline for so many kids and we were just talking about this in our community um all fall sports including cross country have been canceled yes i know um, yeah. and you know, it's it's tough because while we understand the health ramifications and we certainly understand we're in a global pandemic, um, being creative and figuring out ways to make yeah. it work as you're doing it is, is essential for mental health and uh, physical activity. So um, talk to, let, I have a question. This is when putting on a race. One of the concerns that um, I personally have is you said people would be in masks at the start and would be physically, you know, six feet apart, or you would do what you can at the start while people are mm -hmm. gathering. What about porta potties? Because I've been reading all this stuff that the virus is spread in closed spaces and aeration and things like that. And how, is that a concern? With yeah, these? you know, the RRCA has some nice guidance, you know, so you just put up the hand sand, you know, the, the touchless hand sand. We got a bunch of those, you know, mm -hmm. put them on a pole, um, have wipes in there that people can wipe the seat, you know, like, I mean, no kidding, you're a dude. There's those woods over there. It's all fine. We live in a rural place. Just don't do it in someone's yard. Okay? All right. But, yeah, maybe we'll, you know, have like, I don't know if you've been to the New York Marathon, how they have, um, oh, yeah. They have this long, and not for the ladies, for the guys, there's this, it's like a cattle, you know, like where you have a bunch of cows like drink out of it. It's like this long, um, trough. Yeah. And the guys are just like lined up. So maybe we'll, I don't know, we'll, we'll, um, we'll deal with that. But, I think people will figure out how to take a piss. You know, <laughs> coronavirus. We're runners. We're, we can do yeah, that. Yeah, you know, I, you, you ladies do. I know what you do. So I just want to say it on the, there's techniques. Yeah, we know. You know. All right. So. You know, you're you're out on the trail, you know, then you're, you're fine, right? All right. So Freedom's Run, everyone pay attention who lives somewhere close to that, who, um, if you feel. DC, Freedom's yeah. Run. Yeah. Crazy. We're, um, we're party with us. We, we won't, we're not allowed to have our post-race beer party. So that's, but you can still hang out in our towns, but we're just not responsible for you after the race. 
Got know, it. Just obey local ordinance and guidance. You know, wear masks in stores, you know, going into any public place. We have a lot of outdoor eateries, you know, that fit all the state guidance, but you sit outside and spaced out from people. That's okay. Just make sure they're people you know. <laughs> you know, then, you know, your little quarantine is... Yeah, and wear, and wear a mask and be respectful. Common, and, yes, yeah. common sense is what we need to do to reopen the world. So speaking of common sense and reopening the world, um, as a physician in West Virginia, which has um, one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, obesity rates in the country, what are your thoughts about how our country is responding to the global pandemic with respect to noting that often underlying underlying conditions can exacerbate those who are struck with COVID-19, but yet it doesn't feel like we're talking a lot about those underlying conditions. Can you talk it's a little shocking. bit about that? Yeah, it's shocking that we're not, this is an opportunity. So of course, when this hit, no one knew anything about it. You got to hide from it, right? We're, I work in a hospital, right? So I'm draconian and safety measures in the hospital, especially with coworkers. You know, because we don't want to overrun the ICUs. We've seen that now places in the South. So that's like the lockdown, right? You, you just can't, like, you can't overwhelm your system. But ultimately, this isn't going away, right? And there will be another virus, you know, corona-type virus that's going to come. So this is the time now. This is like the end of the beginning, right? So it's like it's a marathon. We're like at mile one right now. So now's the time to sort it out and get healthy. You know, I, I can share the blog I wrote, but there's so many mechanisms of diabetes, insulin resistance, obesity, and the way that innate and adaptive immune system respond to any viral attack. So if you're not well, like 90% of people who end up in your ICU and the worst six foot distance is six foot under, right? That's like what we don't want to pass. So these are people with comorbidities, and they're all on the same spectrum. It's diabetes, it's obesity, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. They all travel together. And then there's the care home. You know, so the advanced elderly are kind of a different group. You know, but most of them have comorbidities too. But it's, it's actually very unusual for a very well young person to get critically sick. Now, it can happen, and it makes the news because they're outliers. And, you know, so that's always in the front page of the Post or the New York Times is some young well person. But quite often when you see that picture of the young well person, they're not well. You're like, they're obese. You know, and I'm saying that as a medical condition, not a, I mean, so they have medical obesity. You see the big neck, they probably have sleep apnea, you know, so they just don't know they're diabetic yet. We actually had a runner on our podcast, uh, our friend Roman, who was very healthy, who contracted coronavirus and was in the hospital. And um, because he didn't have the comorbidities, he, he survived. Um, and he, but there's another part of it, and I, I want to hear the rest to answer your question, but there's another part of it too that I would love to hear your thoughts on, and that is all of the ramifications um, for those who are, who recovered, and I put that in air quotes from the virus, but continue to have awful ramifications, who aren't able to um, resume the active lifestyle they once had. So that too is another question of mine. So. Yeah, so there's a couple parts to yeah. that. I mean, geez, so basically anything any of us says about coronavirus has huge error bars, because really, I mean, I'll be honest, none of us really know Jack about this yet. Yeah. Right? So if anyone says they're an expert in this, I think you have to just quantify that with what we really don't know. So we're learning from experience, but we go back to past, whether you know it's the influenza or past coronaviruses, mm -hmm. like how do bodies respond and how does one type of body versus another 
So the well people may not even, that's these asymptomatic spreaders, right? Or pre-symptomatic spreaders, you know, so there's tons, maybe 90% of people out there, if you're dealing with a younger population, they're going to test positive because they were sent for a test because they had an exposure. They have absolutely no symptoms at all, you know, so they're just, they, they're a case, but they're not sick. Um, so coronavirus as a disease, COVID-19, is really a vascular disease that's inflammatory in the blood vessels. That's why you hear about this clotting, pulmonary hemorrhages, even strokes. So it causes this inflammation and injury to the blood vessels. So if you have a condition that causes that, that's going to take a while to heal because your body has to basically self-repair those. You have 60,000 miles of vascular system in, in the body. And if this is a blood vessel disease, as we're seeing, it really is. It's what it attacks is the blood vessels. I mean, so the lungs get filled with fluid, but it's attacking the vascular system. You know, those 60,000, it's not like, well, there's one blood vessel gets attacked, but the other one's left alone. I mean, the body doesn't behave like that. So all of this microvasculature, which delivers oxygen to the muscles to exercise is injured. So you go like, yeah, you know, I've talked to people who've had this and like a month later, I mean, man, I could just walk into the freaking mailbox is like tiring. You know, they're not the asymptomatic people. These are the people that like ended up in the hospital, you know, sick enough and they were hypoxic, right? They're, they call them happy hypoxics. So they're not delivering oxygen to the body, but it's global, right? They're sitting there chatting with you and their little pulse ox is like 80. So that's like thousands and thousands of miles of delivery system, blood vessels. It goes back to aerobic conditioning. So aerobic conditioning builds those 60,000 miles of blood vessels. So if you're a fit person, you've got well blood vessels. If you're not a fit person, your blood vessels aren't well, all of them. That's my hypothesis and why that is, because then they would have to self-repair, meaning they'd have to get healthy. If they were diabetic and they had that happen and they're still diabetic, their self-repair mechanism is not good, right? They're just going to, they may never get well again, but if they get rid of their diabetes, you know, eat eggs, meat, butter, <laughs> veggies, non-starchy veggies, they might be able to get better. So I don't know if that helps explain it, that a little bit. It helps tremendously because I think everyone feels that there's very little we can control right now, but there is one thing we can control and that is our health. Yeah, what and you put in your mouth is what you can control. Lock down junk food. That's Period. a great reminder and it's something... It. Yeah, and 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 remain physically fit for your mental health because that is also equally as important. Is while we D, right? There's yes. hypotheses about that, but that's a blood vessel uh, dilator, nitrous oxide, sunshine. You know, there's all kinds of layers to this. But basically, just be a normal, healthy human, and your odds of getting sick with it are less. So in the UK today, I was listening to the BBC World News. Uh, coming in to work today. So they are doing that now because uh, Boris Johnson ended up in the ICU. So they're actually like, I'd have to look up, pull up some of the articles. So it like went public today, full public campaign in the UK with exactly what we're talking about. So it's like, wow, well, but why don't we do that in America? It's a disease-based system. Right. But I'm right. a dissenting opinion. I'll go push that out, you know, and there's no downside to getting healthier. No, only to the pharmaceutical companies. <laughs> it's not a good narrative. It's not the narrative people want hydroxychloroquine or esdemivir, or, you know, some vaccine. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm for it. I'm all for it. But, but, you know, I mean, we're like, you have the opportunity now to protect yourself for this endless coronavirus. 
Absolutely, and that is great advice to end on today. And we could talk to you for hours. And, and if you're inclined, we would love to have you back on our podcast yeah, yeah, for can, another episode because we'll we didn't, that would be great because we didn't even get into your, your running store. And there's there's so many things um, about you that are so interesting and multifaceted, but we know you're busy and we so appreciate your time and willingness to talk with us today. And how can our listeners find you, Dr. Mark? Yes, I have a website called Dr. Mark's Desk. Dot com. So you could just go find that and it links to the races, links to the book, uh, links to some of our other outdoor kind of nature activities here, links to the store. You know, we have a little community running store. So go there. Okay. Um, I'll share with you a couple of the articles we mentioned you could post on the quarantining junk food. Absolutely. We will link to all of that in our show notes as well as um, linking to your website. So uh, Dr. Mark, it was such a pleasure to speak with you and we are honored that you lent us uh, some of your time to come on the podcast today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryant. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.